welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Egg. As always, we are your hosts. I'm Matt. I'm Karina. And I'm Lauren. In this episode, we'll be looking at our first Asian American history lesson. For today, we'll touch on the subject that we discussed in passing quite a bit, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. On this date, February 19th, we observe Day of Remembrance to honor and remember all those Japanese Americans who were incarcerated and affected by World War II. We'll explain a bit more on why this day was chosen and why this year in particular is special. Starting off, I wanted us to do a short exercise, and I'd like the audience to think about this too. If you were given 48 hours notice to pack up all of your belongings into just two suitcases with no knowledge of where you were going or for how long, what would you take with you? How would you feel about being forced out of your home and being forced to leave so much behind? Do you want to go first, Lauren? Or do you want me to? I'll go first. So I think when it comes to this question, I maybe be a little bit biased in answering just knowing like what the context of why this question is being asked and this question has been asked before too but I think first thinking of the practical aspects needing to bring my cell phone my laptop any chargers related to that a battery pack just in case you never know if there is no outlet my glasses con- supply of contacts all of my medication that I have for my allergies, eczema, such as like EpiPen, and all that great stuff that I need to survive in case something were to happen. And then important documents such as birth certificate, social security card, passport, anything that would be needed for identification purposes as well as I think moving on to sentimental things such as family photos so having a lot of that on a external hard drive so it's all digital but as well as bringing all of those if possible family albums with original photos that we don't have digitized some clothing is really important change of clothes so for the different seasons as well as you know blankets and anything to keep warm so those are things that I think of like on the top of my head if I were to just be asked this question suddenly I'll popcorn it over to Karina those were some really good and like your logical and practical ones when I thought of the question I was like I thought of all the sentimental ones first so I was noting down as well you know identification I think would be a big thing that you would need to take with you so my yeah passport and my ID as well as my phone and my phone charger my glasses I would take the jewelry that my grandparents have passed down to me that used to belong to them. I would take my oldest stuffed animal that I still have with me, which is my Pikachu. My parents got it, (laughs) got it for me when I was five and I still have it in my room today and I'm 25 now. So it's been with me through thick and thin. Um, Mm -hmm. I would bring pictures of my family, my pillow, because I love my pillow so much. Um, picture. Okay. Did I? Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry. I, I love my pillow. 
uh, I would take my favorite pieces of clothing. And again, like you said, for different seasonal changes, like winter, summer, you don't know where you're going. And I know why this, like you said, I know why this question is being asked. And I know at the time they had to leave behind all their pets, but I have a dog, a guinea pig and a fish. And if I was allowed to bring them along with me and there was no rule against that, I would, those would be like the first things I would grab and then everything else. And thank you also bring up um, an important thing too that I forgot to mention, which is, you know, sentimental items that were passed down. I think that's very important. So not only like you were thinking like jewelry, but I'm thinking of traditional clothing that I have both on my Japanese and my Chinese side. Um, So kimonos and things like that, I would also want to bring along as well, especially some of these items are just so hard to find anymore. And they have very you know, a lot of meaning behind it and something that you want to treasure as much as possible. Yeah. And one more thing, because you were talking about heirlooms and stuff that's not necessarily jewelry. The letters that my grandfather wrote to me while I was in college, he wrote to me every, like all four years and he would send them to USC. And I have Mm -hmm. them in my room at my parents' house. So I would grab those too, like before I left. I mean, there's just like so much you would but I guess that's the point in 48 hours you don't know like what you need to grab and like what you'll miss and you don't know for how long you're Mm -hmm. going to be away so I mean it must have been so hard oh yeah popcorn it over to Matt yeah and I think I mean going off of what both of you said I mean my list is going to be a lot of the same things I mean it's phones and chargers and computers and the essentials I mean glasses, hairbrush, or not hairbrush, toothbrush, uh, toiletries, things like that, glasses, medication, a book or two to tide me over. And there's so many other things I could think of. But I think what's interesting about doing this exercise, and I think we've all done it before, and I'd love to hear what people who haven't done this before think of. But I think the important thing to think about is, even back then, there was a lot of stuff when Japanese Americans were told to do this back in 1942, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know for how long. And there was a lot of things that once they packed it and they got to where they were going, were taken away from them. I mean, a lot of the things like cameras and radios and any sort of bladed objects, anything that could be used as a weapon, even even a baseball bat, a kid's baseball bat would be taken away. And so I think it's always a stark reminder of seeing what we would bring and seeing what other people would bring. And then seeing the reality of what actually happened back in 1942. Yeah, and touching upon the second part of the question you first asked of how would you feel about being forced out of your home? I mean, first of all, being asked all of a sudden to just pack up all that you have and not knowing where you're going is very scary because you're like, okay, am I trying to pack up my whole life? into this little suitcase which is essentially what they had to do or am I going to be able to come back to this home and you know only bring things that I feel like are very crucial for the journey but yeah essentially just being asked this question I just be so 
frustrated and angry. And I think it's really hard for me not to be biased when answering this question just because I know this question has been asked before. And there's a lot of key things that I wanted to say and point out, such as like, you know, family heirlooms, such as like the kimonos, like putting an emphasis on that because knowing back then a lot of people were really concerned about being identified as Japanese, Japanese Americans. And so I know in the past there was a lot of burning of anything that would tie them over to Japan. And this didn't just happen, you know, when they were asked this question, this was happening before that when after the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor bombing, a lot of people started to erase their identity as being Japanese because they didn't want to be seen as the enemy. And I think for me, knowing all that history makes me want to hold on even tighter to my Asian roots and want to be able to possess what little that I have that's been passed down. Yeah. And I think to start off with, we can take a step back and sort of go over why this question is asked and why it was important. Because like I mentioned, this was the reality that 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry had to live with in 1942. Like Lauren mentioned, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, on December 8th, the United States officially entered the war, World War II, against the Japanese and later declared war on Nazi Germany and Italy as well. And as a result, the United States looked at these 120,000 Japanese Americans as well as all Japanese Americans across the country as possible enemies. And in the months following the attack, the U.S. government decided to start looking into the Japanese American community and figure out what they would do with them. I mean, actually, the day of Pearl Harbor, there were arrests made of hundreds of thousands, if not thousands of Japanese Americans that the FBI and the U.S. government had deemed possible spies and saboteurs. A lot of them were Issei immigrant men who were in charge of things like newspapers and schools and churches and all sorts. Anyone who was involved with the community and was seen as a community leader was arrested and taken away and oftentimes never seen again or never heard from for many, many years. And those few months after Pearl Harbor became a very, very scary reality for Japanese Americans across the country, especially on the West Coast and especially in Hawaii, where Japanese Americans made up a third, if not more, of the population there. I think it's also important to note, we talk about, right, that a lot of people think, oh, it's because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor that was the catalyst for all the events that happened afterwards, which we're going to talk more in detail about. But we also have to think about that there was this level of racism that was happening way before that time. And we can cite, you know, specific racist immigration laws that were put into place to prevent those that were, in this case, Japanese with like the gentleman's agreement, you know, limiting or prohibiting those of Japanese to be able to enter to the U.S. and preventing Issei to be a citizen to allow them to have um, ownership of land and things like this. So, yes, we can also look at, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor pushed and was the momentum 
for a lot of things that came afterwards, but there was always this underlying also overt racism that was happening towards the Japanese and Japanese American communities. So I think it shouldn't come to surprise in a way that this happened. And it's very unfortunate to be even saying that. We not only are citing, you know, the gentleman's agreement, but things such as the Chinese Exclusion Act and other immigration and right laws like that that were specifically targeting different communities and prohibiting them from living their life in a country that they hoped they had a better chance in. Yeah, and I think we've touched on that before in other episodes too, that there is this long, long history of anti-Asian racism and general, I mean, generalized racism in this country, but Pearl Harbor was just the catalyst. And as we start to go into this, this history and these stories, I think it's also important to note that there are certain terms and terminology that have been used in the past and are used today. So I think for people who've heard this history before, they've heard words like internment, internment camps, relocation centers, evacuation, and relocation. And those were the terms that were accepted during the war and for many years after. But in recent times, the Japanese American community as well as scholars have taken a look at this and used terminology now that is much more in line with what actually happened. So instead of things like internment and relocation and internment camps, you hear us talk about things like incarceration and incarceration camps. And in some cases, people even use the term concentration camps. Instead of using terms like evacuation and relocation, we use the terms forced removal. And there's many Japanese American organizations and community groups that you can go to to find out why we use these specific terms. And some of those we'll talk about later. But just want to let people know that if they hear us use terminology that isn't familiar with them, this is why we use them. And of course, the power of words is a very important thing. And so with that, I think we can start to go into sort of what actually happened after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and why today, February 19th, is such an important date. February 19th is important because it was the day that President Roosevelt signed an executive order, Executive Order 9066, which gave the Army and other government uh, organizations and government groups the power to designate military zones anywhere across the United States as part of the war effort. And within those military zones, they were able to exclude or forcibly remove any and all persons that they deem necessary. And while the executive order never explicitly stated any specific race or ethnicity or people, it became very apparent soon after that it was targeted towards Japanese Americans because within the months that followed, a series of civilian exclusion orders were posted around the entire West Coast from Washington all the way down through Arizona. And what these orders did was create a series of military zones which was deemed the Western Military Command. And within these zones, Japanese Americans were the first group to be subject to army orders. Things like not being allowed to leave their homes between certain hours of the day, being told that they couldn't go past certain, a certain distance away from their homes, they couldn't go near certain areas that were of military or strategic importance. And eventually, they were used to tell Japanese Americans that they could no longer leave the West Coast. And at some point in the spring of 1942, these exclusion orders finally were posted saying that all Japanese Americans or anyone of Japanese ancestry were to report for forced removal, sometimes within 48 hours and sometimes within two weeks. And as a result, we're told to sell their homes, sell their belongings, pack up two suitcases or as much as you could carry, 
and report for military removal. And this happened from Washington all the way down through parts of Arizona. And this order was subject to 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry. And at this time, two-thirds of those 120,000 were American citizens. And so between about March through May and into June of 1942, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry were forcibly removed from the West Coast and sent to 10 different incarceration camps around the country. And these 10 camps included Manzanar and Tui Lake in California, Poston and Gila River in Arizona, Minidoka in Idaho, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, Amachi, also known as Granada in Colorado, Topaz in Utah, and Jerome and Roar in Arkansas. And so for the remainder of the war, for the next three to four years, these 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry called these camps home. And I think that's an important place for us to start. And so while all of us here, I think, have learned about the incarceration and know a good deal on the subject, we're by no means experts, so please don't quote us on any of this, but we'll do our best. But I did want to start off by explaining why this is so important to the three of us. So if we can go ahead and, I guess, start off with why or what our connection is to the incarceration experience. Yeah, I think, so I know everyone's experience is different. So there's also terminology that generation terminology in Japanese that I want to explain because I think it does um, play a part in the passing of knowledge and what it means to us. So I think all of us here are Yonsei, which means fourth generation of Japanese ancestry, specifically in this context, Japanese American. Um, those that were put into camps were the Issei and the Nisei. Issei, um, when we are counting generations in Japanese, the Issei are actually the immigrants that came to the U.S. And these were the ones that couldn't become citizens. The Nisei were their American-born children. So the first generation that were in the U.S. And we have the Sansei, which is the third generation of Japanese-Americans. And there were some Sansei in the camps, but I think a lot of times, or at least in my experience, the Sanseis were... Uh, our parents' generations, so they weren't in the camps. So usually it's the Issei and the Nisei that are talked about, but it's not just them, but most of the time we're in the camps. And so I am the granddaughter and great-granddaughter to two Japanese-Americans that were formerly incarcerated on my dad's side. So... My paternal grandfather was put into Tule Lake, and that's pretty significant. And we'll probably discuss a little bit more later. And my paternal grandmother, she and her family were at Gila River in Arizona. So 
having personal experience or personal knowledge, not experience, of family history has, I would say, definitely impacted the way I go about my life and how I view certain topics and issues. And the thing I mentioned earlier was I was very fortunate that my grandfather wanted to talk about his experience. Not every family is lucky to know what happened because there were varying degrees of how people felt about their experience in the camp. I think, you know, thinking about what they had to endure and the conditions, some people were very much embarrassed or didn't want to talk about that experience. And then there are thinking about, you know, all the children that were born or raised in the camps. I think, you know, when you hear some of the oral histories, it might have been a little bit more of a positive experience. But we have to also think about it, right? It was such poor quality and conditions, and their parents didn't want them to really remember or think about it that way. So they made it the best possible way for them. And so I think it's very dependent on how old you were when you entered the camps that impacted the way you felt and experienced camp. And those experiences, you know, affected how they felt about letting their families know that weren't in the camps. So I was just very lucky when I was younger in elementary school, actually, that my dad was the one who was like, never forget, this is what, you know, your grandparents had to go through. And since then, I've always had an interest in learning more and talking about it. And I think it was definitely spurred on when it was just never talked about in school. And I felt like it was my mission to learn more as much as I could from personally talking to uh, my grandfather because he was the only one that was alive that can tell me family-wise, reading all of the historical fiction, nonfiction, books in the library, doing research, doing any research project that we were given free reign on to have the opportunity to learn more and also teach it to my classmates. So... I think it's just something that I've always been constantly wanting to learn and talk about since a young age. Well, that's that's such a great story and way to be, you know, you tell people about your history and um, the way you're introduced to it. Uh, Mine, the way I was introduced to what happened to the Japanese Americans during World War II was studying about it in middle school. And I think that was the first time that my grandparents 
told me that they were in the incarceration camps. I know we talked about terminology earlier, so excuse my pause. I've always called them internment camps. Um, But for my family, on my father's side, they were both Japanese, so two of my relatives, my Japanese families, were taken to the Santa Anita racetrack and they stayed there for a couple of weeks while the government tried to figure out where to relocate them. And eventually my grandfather and his family went to Rower and I don't remember which one my grandmother was sent to first, but I know that she was either in Heart Mountain first and then sent to Tule Lake, or she was sent to Tule Lake first, and then Heart Mountain. Um, so those were the camps that I learned about, and of course Manzanar, mm-hmm. which is the closest one if you're um, in Southern California to visit. Um, and I just remember learning about it in history class, and then hearing the story. My grandmother never talked about her experience. When it Mm -hmm. came to my dad wanting me to talk to my grandparents about what happened and their experiences, she would always leave the room. I'm not sure if it's because she doesn't remember it because they were both young children when Mm -hmm. they were relocated. Um, But my grandfather, I think he puts a very positive spin on it. And I think, again, like you said, it's because he was a child. And he said that there were times where he knew that people hated them because of their race and that he felt the racism and the anger and the hatred towards them. And he didn't know why. All he knew was what he was told. Um, And going to the camps, he always said, oh, like, I thought it was like a vacation. There was no school. Mm. We, you know we were just like told where to go and you were living with a bunch of these like other Japanese families. And he was like, I played a lot of the time. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what was happening, but it was like very dry um, where he was. And you weren't allowed to have like that many personal items. So any wild animals that were there, (laughs) he would try and grab and keep as a pet, but then like, you know, they would have to release them. And He said Mm -hmm. he never, I don't know if he never wanted to look back on it in a bitter way or if he just Mm -hmm. like doesn't remember. And that's honestly like how he sees his experience. Mm -hmm. But I just remember hearing his stories and learning about it and just feeling so sad on the inside. And I just, I look at my grandparents and I love them so much. And it's, I have to remember that their childhood was not like ours, that Mm -hmm. they they lived during a a world war. And as scary as that must have been, they were also treated like criminals when they were not. And having to give up everything you know, having to lose your friends who suddenly hate you, and going to a place where, you know, so many, you don't know when you're going to be back. And then when the war was like finally over and 
they were released. I don't know what the proper terminology would be, but when they were allowed to go home, I remember my grandpa didn't want to leave because he was like, where's home? Like what, what we have to go back to. And, you know, you just, you have, they had to start from scratch all over again. Yeah. And that just completely broke my heart. And when I traveled to Manzanar, I've been there a couple of times. The first time my dad mm-hmm. said it was important for my sisters and I to see, you know, um, what an intern, sorry, incarceration camp looked like. Mm-hmm. It like shattered my heart all over again because those conditions are awful and you have no privacy. And yeah. the, it's just, I can't even put into words how a person can live like that and tolerate being treated like that and I don't it's it just really gives me a sense of pride to see how far my grandparents have come Mm -hmm. and I also never want to forget what has happened to them and it's definitely something that I will pass down to my children no matter what their ethnicity may be and tell them to pass it down to their own children because nothing like that should ever ever happen again and I know there have been a few close calls with other minority groups and that's terrifying to think that we haven't learned from our mistakes and so this is why I think it's something that every year it needs to be talked about and I'm glad it is Mm -hmm. I think you touched upon like a lot of things that I also want to add on. I think one of the first things you think about, or one of the first things I think about is, I think it's really important for those that are listening, if you do have the opportunity to, whether it's, you know, the annual pilgrimage, the most well-known one is mentioned, the Manzanar one, or, you know, to just make that trek out there. Because something that's mentioned, and as we're fil- as we're recording this right now, it's winter. And uh, growing up from SoCal, I get cold very easily. But I've actually gone out to Manzanar during this time of the year as well. You know, what I think is cold right now here in San Diego is nothing compared to what is out there in Manzanar and the other camps. Because to paint kind of a picture for our listeners they basically were being forcibly removed out to the desert where it is so cold at night and they are essentially living in these poorly constructed or these reused horse-like stalls to be living in and there were holes and cracks in the foundation and so at night when they go to sleep first of all you know the cold seeps in but as well as being out in the desert the sand also seeps through and so some people would talk about waking up the next day and just everything being covered in sand and also you know going outside and just all that wind and sand that's in your face. And, you know, in the summer, it's so hot. And 
it's just miserable and terrible. So in the beginning, it's just so they just had to do the best they can. And, you know, what is really great, as you mentioned, is people were able to persevere and make do with what they were given. And a lot of people, you know, it's really one of the few things that like makes me smile when I talk about these kind of this history is people made gardens. They made rock gardens. They made actual um, rivers and planted these parks that some people who were, you know, in high school, university age were talking about how they would go out on dates <laughs> with their significant other out in these parks that were made that came from nowhere because they're out in the desert and they made it happen. You know, they're resilient. And I think that is something that cannot be taken advantage of, though, just because they were able to survive. As you mentioned, like, this should never happen again. To never forget and to never say, oh, because they were able to, you know, this is a little bit, you know, debunking and saying how the model minority myth is something that was built upon. For those that don't know, during, you know, fast forward a little bit into this talk during the civil rights movement as a way to pit communities together, it was actually cited in some news articles that, hey, look at the, specifically the Japanese Americans. They were literally put through hell into these camps, but they were able to persevere and able to, you know, rise like the phoenix. Why can't other communities of color do the same? And I would just like to put this out there because just because our grandparents and our great-grandparents were able to get through it doesn't mean that the psychological and the physical scars aren't there and something that is thought about every single day. And there is intergenerational trauma. What they experience within the camps impacts in some ways a lot of the ways our parents grew up and how we grew up. I think one of the things that I like to talk about too is we're all Yonsei, but if you were to ask any one of us if we spoke Japanese, a lot of us would just be like, no, or yeah, kind of, but learning it. And I'm not saying everyone who's a Yonsei is like that, but many of us the language was lost. And you have to think about why was the language lost? Well, it's because being put into camp, specifically being of Japanese ancestry, to make our parents and our lives easier, you know, you take away passing down that language. You take away having any identifiers, whether it's the way you dress, the way you speak, your name. And so we have to think about those things as well of, you know, culture and history was slowly being erased. And I think our generation, many of us are trying to prevent that. 
we are taking up speaking Japanese again. We are also continuing, whether it's through this podcast, through our community, through the work that we do, we're telling um, our story, how what it means to us, but as well as I think, especially for me, I'm telling my grandparents' story because both of them are no longer here. And so to make sure, you know, people remember and that they had a voice um, to let the world know what it means. And like you said, I want to pass down these stories. However little of the stories that I have left, um, that they left behind, I want my children to know what happened. So Karina and I talked a lot. So Matt, why don't you talk about, you know, so what this, why this episode is so significant, especially personally. And then there's also a lot of other topics that were brought up that I'm sure you and I will probably want to do a deeper dive into. I was going to say, I think you stole about 90% of what I was going to say, which is fantastic. Oops. And I mean, <laughs> it's fine because I know you and I could talk about this for hours on end. But mm-hmm. but as far as my story, I mean, I think, I mean, I think about all of that, all of that you talked about when, when I think about my grandfather. So for me, I'm only a quarter Japanese. So only my maternal grandfather's family was incarcerated and he was sansei. He was one of the few sansei in camps, and his parents were Nisei, which means that his parents and him and his siblings were all American citizens, and they were born here in the U.S., and that's all they'd ever known for their lives. That also makes me a gosei, so I'm actually not a yonsei. I'm fifth gen, but it's okay. But yeah, so my grandfather and his family lived in Northern California, up near San Jose area. And when those civilian exclusion orders came out, like I said, they actually tried to leave California at first. Um, before the final orders came in and they got as far as about the city of Turlock in northeastern California before the final orders came in and they were forced to forcibly removed like the other 120,000 Japanese Americans Uh, and like Lauren's family they were sent to Gila River and that's where they spent the next three and a half four years for the duration of the war and actually as a result that's why I grew up in Arizona my grandfather and his family never left after the war ended he built a life there, despite having been incarcerated, despite growing up in a completely different area. That's where he made his life, and that's where he made his community. And like Lauren and like Karina were saying, that he never held any resentment. He always saw it as they called it camp, and a lot of us call it camp still, but we, we know what camp means. Because to him, he was he was seven when the war began, and he was only 10 when the war ended. I think that story to me is so important because I learned it much, much later. I was probably 10 or 11 years old when I finally learned about it, um, which I know does not seem late, but to me that's late. Because I'd grown up hearing the stories about my family's suffering from the Holocaust in Europe and being discriminated against with the Chinese Exclusion Act on my Chinese side. So not hearing this whole side of my family history, but also one that was much, much closer because my ancestors who had to deal with those other 
other things I never got to meet, but here was my grandfather who was sitting right before me and I learned was technically a prisoner of war for four years. And so I think for me that had a profound impact on my life, which I'm sure both Lauren and Karina know, because it got me to change my whole career path, basically. I mean, I ended mm-hmm. up choosing a different major in college. I ended up joining way more clubs because of it. I studied Japanese, Japanese American history in college. And obviously, for actually, for those who don't know, I actually work for a Japanese American organization now, a Japanese American Civil Rights Org, all because of my grandfather's story and because of what happened to the Japanese American community during World War II. And I think that in a large part is why it's so important to share this story because, again, it had such a profound effect on me, but also all the descendants of the incarceration. Like Lauren said, there mm-hmm. was this entire sense of intergenerational trauma that affects all of us today. And you'll find in descendants of incarceration, we suffer higher rates of anxiety and medical issues and all these sorts of things that is a result of it. And it took people 80, almost 80 years to realize that, oh, this was a thing and this is how profound of an effect it had, even though that there was a long period of time in during the civil rights era where Japanese Americans fought to have this wrong righted. I mean, there's a period known mm-hmm. as the redress era where Japanese Americans fought to have the government apologize and pay monetary reparations for what had happened during the war. And eventually, the Japanese American community did succeed. And in 1988, the Civil Liberties Act was signed by President Ronald Reagan. And all surviving incarcerees were given an official apology and $20,000 in redress payments. And while that sounds like a great victory, we also have to remember that in 1988, only about half of the former incarcerees were still alive, which is roughly 60,000 out of 120,000. And even then, $20,000 in 1988 versus all of the lost revenue and lost property from the war, $20,000 was a fraction of a fraction of what each person lost. And that's just the monetary loss. I mean, not to mention all the loss of social lives and work. And I mean, a lot of people suffered as, as we've talked about. I mean, it was deplorable and horrible conditions that a lot of these people lived in and they tried to make the best of it but it still had a profound effect on everyone who was put through that and not to mention there's a lot of other things that happened in the camp that we didn't talk about there was things like nisei men who were in their 20s being asked to join the army while their parents were locked up or being drafted to fight in the army while their parents were locked up there were those who refused to to be enlisted mm-hmm. and were sent to a prison camp under armed guard. And there were those who were even court-martialed and sent to military prisons uh, for years. And of course, there were other people who resisted like Fred Korematsu and Min Yasui and Gordon Hirabayashi who took their cases all the way to the Supreme Court. And there's so much other depth to the story of incarceration that we could go into, but is, I mean, it's hard to fit four years of basically an entire community's history into one hour. And not just like history, but I'd also just say trauma because, Mm. you know, as you mentioned, it's not just monetary, but, you know, if you also think about it, their livelihoods, like, you know, it was really hard back then for people to own land 
or to have a store because of their race and their citizenship. And so many had to close those down and sell all of their property at such cheap prices. And it's so unfortunate to say that many people were being taken advantage because they knew that they had to sell it cheap. And people were just coming in and buying all of these precious possessions at such cheap prices. I think the emotional aspect that was done for your grandparents, it was their childhood, literally their childhood, such young age being put into a concentration camp. I think what was interesting reflecting, realizing that actually my grandparents, when they were in camp, they were actually much older. They're in high school. So I think I think my my opinion, uh, emotions sometimes at times are very strong because the way I reflect back is the things that I heard from my grandpa. And a lot of it was, you know, there was some bitterness and upset and embarrassment when it came to talking about it. Just, you know, through how little was said and through the words that were being used, such as he felt like they were cattle being herded into uh, into an enclosement behind barbed wires. And because we have to think about with my grandparents, my grandpa actually graduated high school in the camps and did not go into college. He ended up, it's really interesting him talking about it, saying how he decided to be a social worker in the camps. And there's oh. a picture of that and all of that. Um, but it was because, you know, as the years went by, some people, it was like, you know, they wanted to stay close to family. So they were trying to find jobs in the camps. You know, later on, you hear stories of how people were able to actually leave the borders for certain, like, enclosement for certain reasons you know some of it is military service some people were able to find jobs but the reality is as Matt mentioned is your family is still in the camps they're still behind barbed wires so even if you are able to go out it's just this conflict and I think something that I want to also touch upon as well is my grandfather was in Tui Lake and so I'm, I'm really interested here, Karina, because you mentioned you weren't sure the order yeah. of how your family was in the camps. And I think that's pretty critical because for those that know, there was the – Matt may know this because he's better at remembering facts and dates and things like that. But there was at one point the loyalty questionnaire. So yes. my grandpa yeah. at a certain point actually was – originally at the Sacramento, in quotes, relocation center. And the loyalty questionnaire basically had him put into Tule Lake. And Tule Lake is considered one of the more harsher concentration camps because when the loyalty questionnaire came out, anyone that answered no, no, were seen as disloyal and putting into a much more under surveillance camp so there was more guard posts there was more guns you know pointing inward really wanting to emphasize you know there's a lot of euphemism and propaganda <laughs> surrounding 
talking about camp and saying, oh, they were put there for their own protection. Something that I always like to point out when that's being said is the guns were pointed in. They're not being protected at all. Instead, it is what it sounds like. They are in a concentration camp being put there, you know, unconstitutionally for racist reasons. So going back a little bit to the loyalty questionnaire, there, there's just a lot around it <laughs> that is just very <laughs> problematic. So there's one question asking, would you be willing to serve in the military? And we also have to think about this question is being asked to everyone. And I mean everyone, especially the elderly. <laughs> They're being asked if they would fight in the military. And this then this was also asked to women. This is very gendered, I understand, and very sexist. But, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of involvement with the women in military. I actually take that back. There is a lot of, like, you know, accomplishments and things done by women in the military. But in general, if a woman were to be asked back then if they would fight, like, actually go on combat for the military, the answer would probably be no. So there's a lot of confusion. And I don't know, can't remember the exact wording, but the wording was so confusing. And we have to also think about, too, right, the Issei, a lot of them most of them spoke Japanese. So like this had to also then be translated and just a lot of confusion. The second question that is very misleading was, are you willing to swear your allegiance to the United States and to no longer have allegiance to the emperor of Japan? So this question is mm -hmm. very confusing really messed up because essentially this question is asking a lot of people to not have a country and what i mean by that especially for the issei well okay japan is all that they know of most of their life and where they were born and raised before they came to the u.s for a better life and so to no longer have allegiance to japan okay and to swear their allegiance to the U.S., well, they can't become a citizen. So they essentially don't have a country. And for those who are American-born, it was insulting because it's like you're questioning literally my loyalty to a country that I've only known and where I was born and actually an American citizen for. Yeah. I had no connection to Japan. Why are you asking me this? So... These were two essentially questions that helped determine whether or not you were loyal, hence the name loyalty, the, the nickname of loyalty questionnaire. And so for me personally, my grandfather said no, no. And most people that said no, they're called the no-no boys. A lot of it was like they wanted to resist. And I really do applaud them for that. But for... My grandfather, I know the way he told me was he wanted, they didn't know what was going to happen. It's again, another questioning, another order, but they don't know what the outcome is. There was a lot of, you know, rumors of like, oh, if you answered this, you might be sent back to Japan. And some people were like freaking out, right? Because like, I've never been to Japan. And so 
I think essentially my gr- grandfather, all he cared about was making sure that his family stayed together. And mm-hmm. so that's how they came to the decision of no, no. And I think there's so many different stories around these questions, how it tore families apart because, you know, you have the Issei that, you know, culturally known as seeing as the figureheads, but in this situation where these questions are being asked in English and they're not citizens, a lot of times then the decision fell onto the Nisei, the American-born, and they had other thinking. Some didn't like their loyalty being questioned. Some were like, just go along with it and just see how it goes, and if we don't question it, it'll be okay. And so there are some families that were torn apart by this que- these questions because literally they could not agree and put different answers. There's so many heartbreaking stories of how these questions impacted them. And that's just like one aspect of the camps, that there's so many different stories that can be told around it. So, yeah, essentially, I'm interested in, <laughs> and I don't know if, like, you eventually will find out because it'd be really interesting because if your grandmother... I know I know that my grandmother's family was a no-no family. Okay, so I think it's then they went to Tule Lake. Yeah, because if they left Tule Lake, that meant then, essentially, that they weren't considered disloyal. So then they were going to a... I don't know what's the right way to word it, but like maybe a lesser surveillance. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I know they struggled with the same question or that's what I was told. And if I'm remembering correctly, yeah, it was the loyalty questionnaire and they were just wanted to keep their family together. And they said, how can we be loyal to a country that we've never really ever been loyal to because, you know, they were born there and my grandma had like so many older siblings and I do think there was some conversation between like her older siblings and her parents about what they were going to do but I think in the end they just decided you know we need to stick together and they ended up being a no-no family yeah and actually too I think going back to what Lauren said about all these different stories is there's this phrase that there's 120,000 people, so there's 120,000 different stories. And that is very, very true. I mean, you can talk to anyone who had family in the camps and they'll tell you extremely different stories and experiences and where they were before, where they went after. And I mean, even looking at Tule Lake, like I said, my my family was at Gila River, but actually my grandfather's sister, who was much older, she was in her 20s, she went to Tule Lake because the man that she wanted to marry before the war was at Tule Lake. So when he asked her to join her there, she went, despite never having said no, no on the questionnaires. But she wanted to be with the man she loved. And so she spent the remainder of the war in Tule Lake. And again, with the 120,000 stories, I think that's why it's so hard to get go so in-depth into what happened during the war, just because there is so much that happened and I know we've been jumping around a lot between time frames and history and places and that's why I think it's so important that these things are especially are taught in school and taught in the public sphere and just better known to people because 
I mean, there's still a lot of people who have heard the terms, have know a little bit, but don't know just how bad it was, don't know exactly what happened and why it's so dangerous. I mean, I talked about redress earlier, and one of the reasons that the U.S. government awarded redress to the Japanese American community was because of a government commission that found that the incarceration was built on a lie. The The army had said it was a military necessity in 1942. And in 1988, Congress found that it was not military necessity, but it was a mix of war hysteria, racial prejudice, and a failure of political leadership. And that's why they were able to the Japanese American community was able to gain redresses because the government realized that they had screwed up. And that the scary thing about that was, as we mentioned earlier too, we saw it almost happen again later. I mean, after 9-11, the same sort of things were being thrown around, these ideas of putting Muslim and Arab Americans in incarceration camps and creating registries and not allowing them to come to the country, much like it happened to Japanese Americans in 1942. And even now we see migrants from the southern border and from around mm-hmm. the world who try to come to this country and are thrown into detention centers that are very in eerily similar to the to the incarceration camps and in some mm-hmm. cases they were actual centers that were used during the war to hold japanese americans yep and even going further back a lot of them were even used to hold native americans in the 1800s but all that is to say like this is why it's so important that this history is known and understood. There was a man I met when I was interning at Janum, and he pulled out his um, like a pocket-sized Constitution and Bill of Rights, and he showed it to me, and he said, "I always carry this around me anywhere I go, just in case someone tries to take advantage of me again." And I didn't cry in front of him, but after he left, I'm not kidding, I cried so hard. Because to feel like you're not protected by your own government, by your own country, what an awful feeling to have and like to live with. Yeah, and I yeah. think it's, and I even think of, at least the story I always think of is, is Normanetta, who was secretary of transportation and became like the highest ranking Asian American in the U S government at one point who was incarcerated as a boy at Hart mountain. Every time I've seen him and he always tells the story, but he always wears an American flag pin on his lapel. And it's a reminder to people that he's an American citizen oh. because no one can tell him otherwise because he was born here. But it's also a reminder that he was even as a citizen, he was incarcerated as about the same age as my grandfather in an incarceration camp. Just really heartbreaking to think about, you know, it might not seem like a lot to people, right? Because people might just see like, oh, it's just a little flat, like American flag. But it means so much more because of the experiences that they had to go through. And it makes you really think about like I sometimes think about randomly you know the first question we were asked and that we asked that the audience reflect on I just think about what if this happened again maybe like even specifically to our community how would we react 
And I've actually had conversations with uh, my parents about this because my dad's Japanese American, but my mom is Chinese American. And, you know, she said that even though I'm not Japanese, I would go with, you know, your brother and you and your dad because I would want to stay with family. And that's also a reality for a lot of people, right? Mixed families during that time. Um, like, where would they go? And a lot of times it was wanting to stay together, right? And them all going to the camps. And we also have to think about, too, which is something that I've learned years recently that is so heartbreaking is all of the Japanese, Japanese-American orphans. They had no parents. They are little kids being put into camps, being seen as the enemy. It was either there was going to be military presence around that single home for the orphans or they would go into the camps. And so a lot, they all chose to go into the camps. But for people to view, you know, little kids as the enemy just because they were of Japanese ancestry, it really blows my mind of how far the things that you mentioned, war hysteria, racial prejudice, the failure of government would push people into concentration camps. And I think something that you've also previously mentioned was let's think about Hawaii and, you know, that's where Pearl Harbor is. For those that don't know, not everyone in Hawaii were put into camps because, as mentioned, about one-third or so of the population were of Japanese, Japanese-American, and that was a large part of their workforce. And so if they couldn't work, the, the economy would collapse. And so, and it'd be too expensive to send all of these Japanese and Japanese Americans to the mainland. So they flew some out to the mainland, and there was some camps on Hawaii, but thinking about it, the very, I guess, irony, but that doesn't seem like the right word, just how messed up, you know. It didn't make sense, but it still happened. We also need to acknowledge when we discussed redress that we just didn't also include Japanese Latin Americans and that there are also camps in Canada. When it comes to the discussion about Japanese Latin Americans and reparation and redress, that's a whole other conversation that I wish that we could discuss, but just bringing this up to think about that there were Japanese communities in Latin America that were rounded up and sent to the U.S. to be put into camps and to acknowledge their stories and to fight for reparations for their community. We're not only talking about 120,000 American stories, but as well as other communities of Japanese ancestries that were impacted by this executive order and the decisions that were carried out. And as mentioned when we first started this episode, today, February 19th, is Day of Remembrance, a time to remember what has happened on this specific day when Executive Aura 966 was signed. So, 80 years. Think about it, it's just so wild to compare it to the fact that 80 years can be seen as the lifetime of someone. So, this history 
isn't that old, especially when us Yonsei have personally known family and friends and people within the community that have actually personally lived through it. So we need to, more than ever, to continue to tell our family stories, especially with the purpose in mind of never letting it happen again. We say this and we'll just keep saying it until it's true, never again. This is most important, especially when our history classes and our education is lacking so great of leaving out our stories and if, if anything, if we're even mentioned, just being reduced down to a sentence or two. Our history isn't something that should be also one we have to figure out ourselves and learn on our own. It really should be taught in the classroom with us learning alongside our classmates at the same time. So not only do we feel included to hear our history and our story being told, but at the same time, others learning as well. We just can't keep our stories just alive within the Japanese American community. For this to never happen again, these stories need to be heard by everyone. Yeah, it's all that, all those experiences, both past and present, is why we celebrate Day of Remembrance and why we honor all of those Japanese and Japanese Americans, as well as Japanese Latin Americans and Japanese Canadians who were incarcerated. And I think with that, I know we've talked way, way too long already, but I think with that, um, too, is to point out that there's a lot of resources and places that people can go to learn more about this history. Places like Densho Archives, uh, the Japanese American National Museum in Little Tokyo, uh, the Japanese American Citizens League, which is where I work, uh, Go for Broke National Education Center, also in Los Angeles, the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, and Manzanar Committee. Uh, these are just a few of the organizations that work to not only preserve Japanese American history, but also to fight for the civil rights of Japanese Americans and also to expand the story of what happened to Japanese Americans during the war because it's not just Japanese American history, but it's American history because it took place in this country and in some small sense, it is going to impact all of us and impact anyone who's American because, like we said, it was unconstitutional. and. It is a reminder how flimsy sometimes the Constitution can be when we're taught that it's so foolproof and that the government is always right. But with that, we've come to the end of our episode, and we want to thank all of you again for listening to such an important and deep and meaningful topic to all of us, and we hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you take the time to reflect and hopefully learn more about the experience of Japanese Americans during World War II. But for our next episodes, they will be released every other Saturday. For updates, guest announcements, and more programming for Breaking the Egg, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BreakingTheEgg underscore official. This has been Breaking the Egg Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>